Welcome to our Systematic Theology class through Immersion Discipleship School. This is session two called The Doctrine of Salvation. Now you'll remember last week what we talked about was the doctrine of God and we were looking at who God is and what God is like. We referenced his Trinitarian nature, his absolute and moral attributes. And so we wanna build on that and typically what we would do in systematic theology is we would talk about the doctrine of man right after the doctrine of God and then we would talk about the doctrine of sin and we're kind of jumping over those and the reason that I'm doing that is because I'm gonna share some of that stuff in this doctrine today. This teaching and lesson, the doctrine of salvation is going to have some of those things in it. And so with the amount of time that we have over the next several weeks, I figured we're just going to have to chop some of the things that we typically would go over if we had like a 10 or 12 or 13 week class. So we're definitely packing a lot in and you're going to want to be prepared for that. But this is a very important lesson when we talk about salvation, how it is that somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is eternally secure to be with their Heavenly Father forever. And so this is such a lesson that the church needs. And so I am praying that God uses this in your walk and my walk so that we can be drawn closer to him and be more clear about him with the world around us. Now, when we look at this issue of salvation and wanting to understand it better, I wanna first kind of look at really what the word means. In the New American Standard Bible, the word salvation is used 161 times. Now that's the Old and the New Testaments. The word salvation generally means uh, to be delivered or deliverance from danger or suffering. And it carries the idea of victory, health, and preservation. Sometimes the Bible uses words like saved or salvation to refer to temporary physical deliverance. Now, it's very important when you're looking at the Old Testament, for example, when you see the word salvation, it's not the same word that we're going to be referencing, uh, but we do want to look at it. And so this is some of the ways that the word is referenced. For example, in the Old Testament, you see the first point that I want to make is Moses uh, and Israel were delivered or saved from the Egyptians when the Red Sea was parted. You see that in Exodus 14, 13. Also, you see in David's day in the Psalms, he sings of God's delivering power or saving power from the hand of Saul. This is Psalm 1835. He says, you have also given me the shield of your salvation. So when you read about the salvation in the Old Testament, a lot of times what's being referenced there is God's temporary uh, physical deliverance from oppression. It's not talking about salvation unto eternity always in the Old Testament. You have another instance in the book of Jonah where Jonah prays to God that he might be saved while he is in the belly of the fish. So he's praying for salvation. He's wanting God to save him. And this is what's referenced in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. So it's very clear from these passages and many others that the Jews had an understanding that salvation in their day meant that God would deliver them from present danger. And when it comes to an understanding of the Messiah, there was a concept similar in the New Testament that God would send a deliverer, the Messiah, that was promised by the prophets in the Old Covenant, and he would deliver them from the Roman oppression. And so this is what they fully expected, that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would overturn the Roman government. He would come with military and political power. And salvation would mean that Israel would be able to come alongside God and his anointed Messiah and rule and reign from that position. And so it's important to realize, obviously, that their theology and understanding how the Messiah would come and why the Messiah would come 
was not necessarily accurate. And that's what we see Jesus sort of helping them to realign and reframe their personal theology and what being saved actually meant. That's why Jesus didn't come just to become like a warlord or a military political uh, king. He came to give his life in order to restore people back to relationship with the Father, which is what we lost, so that we can rule and reign with him forever, salvation unto eternity. Now, Paul speaks about this, and this is my point four, where Paul speaks of a salvation of the soul unto life. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So he's speaking of a different kind of salvation that, uh, than we, what we've read about so far. Salvation of the soul unto life. We call this being born again. And then also, point five, Paul shares about a gospel, a good news of salvation that saves our soul. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the good news is the good news of salvation, salvation of our soul unto eternity through Jesus Christ. And the sixth point I want to make in our, just in our introduction here is that Paul speaks of an eternal salvation. Uh, we hear uh, of this, as, obviously this is focused on Christ being the good news of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.10 Paul tells Timothy, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So what we see shift from the Old Testament, salvation is physical, temporary deliverance. And then we go into the New Testament and the Jews still have this understanding, even though the Messiah is going to come, they don't really understand this whole unto eternity salvation of the soul unto eternity. They kind of have this idea that the Messiah is going to rule and reign. He's going to come with military political power and overturn the Roman oppression, right? Physical, temporary salvation. And so we see Paul actually shift that in his message of explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about us receiving the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be restored to right relationship with God and have eternity with Him. That truly is salvation. And so we see this, but we want to look at the need that we have for salvation. As we get going into this conversation, we truly have a need to be saved. And this is such an important part of what we have to talk about. And as the story goes, uh, point number one is we were created in God's image for relationship, fellowship, and partnership in life. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. And then he gives us an assignment to rule over the things on the earth that God had created. You and I were made by God, for God, in the image of God. But this isn't where the story stops. Obviously, we see that we were commanded to abstain from a specific choice as we enjoyed the life that we were given. He puts two trees in the garden. One tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, among the other trees, there were two specific trees. And he says about this tree that you shall not eat of its fruit for the day that you eat of it, you surely shall die. 
And this is an important reality. He gives us a choice and calls us to abstain from something and worship him in the middle of it. Choose, choose God instead of this other option that we're not to choose. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. There was another tree in the garden called the tree of life. But we know from Genesis chapter 3 that we were tempted by the enemy to disobey God's clear command to us and for us. The enemy comes into the garden, says that he's a serpent. We know later on Paul tells us the serpent of old is the devil. And the devil in the form of a serpent tempts Eve and distorts the word of God. Did God really say, and she said, yes, God has really said, if I eat of this tree, then I will die. And she ends up seeing this tree, kind of her eyes are opened. It's a delight to her eyes to make her wise. In some way she was tempted and she eats of the fruit of this tree and she gives some to Adam and they disobey God. They turn away from God in this instance. We see this story, Genesis chapter three, verse one through seven. And in this, uh, they not only were tempted, but we, they disobeyed. And we know that Adam's name means man. And this is called the fall of man. In other words, all of us were in Adam when they chose to disobey God. And after that point of them disobeying God, there was a curse that was enacted upon them and that curse is the curse of death. We see that in the rest of the story of Genesis chapter 3. When we disobeyed God's command, as a result, we received specific consequences. As we see from this, uh, the, that previous passage, the entire human race was sold into slavery to sin. The consequence for this was threefold death. Death wasn't just physical death. They did not physically die right after they ate the fruit we know that the death cycle set in. There's three kinds of death. First is physical death. They were created for life. They were made to live and to live forever. But the death, physical death cycle set in right then. So after everybody that was born after Adam and Eve ends up dying. And that wasn't what God created us for. It's why we grieve at a funeral because we know that there should be something more. This isn't what we were made for. There's a longing, a desire. It's why Jesus wept when he heard the news of Lazarus dying. He, he, he wept as a, as a man. He was more than a man, but he wept because death is not what we were created for. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, which we see represented in the garden as the tree of life. But physical death, the cycle of physical death, was enacted as a result of the fall and our disobedience. But also spiritual death was also enacted. And by spiritual death, we mean separation from the kind of relationship with God that we were created for. We read about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, and it says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. In other words, Adam and Eve sinned and death was spread to all men because of their sin. This is the fall, which I've already explained. So physical death, spiritual death, and also eternal death. We see this 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. Those who die in their sins, not being saved, not receiving salvation of their soul unto life, they are, they are separated from God eternally. And this is what it says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. 
This is the plan, a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on the day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. This shows us that the consequence of us turning away from God from the beginning of human history is physical death, um, spiritual death, and eternal death. That's the fullness of consequence that we receive as a result of our rebellion. It leaves us in need of a Savior. We need to be saved, and we need a Savior. A sick person needs a doctor. An accused person needs a lawyer. A drowning person needs a lifeguard. And the biblical story that I just shared with you shows you that we need a Savior. But what is the provision for salvation? The storyline of Scripture reveals the interaction and intervention of God for the purpose of salvation. And according to Scripture, we know that God had a plan of salvation before man had ever sinned. It speaks about this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, referencing God's foreknowledge. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, that those who would be in Christ were chosen to be in Christ before the foundations of the world. This plan was set in motion before we had ever sinned. God knew that it was going to happen. God put a plan in place so that He could restore and redeem His creation, His crowning prized possession, human beings that He desires to be with, walk with, and have relationship with. And this is what God desires. So the provision for salvation was something that He set into place. And we see that not only just in Christ, but we see it's something happening in the Old Testament that cues up what Jesus actually came and gave his life for in the temporary provision of the Old Testament. That's what we would call it is a temporary provision. And temporary provision looks like this. First, it was the law. When the Bible refers to the law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, the Levitical law and the Torah. God brought about this law to give men and women an awareness for their need for him, their need for a savior. The Bible says that the law was a teacher or a tutor, which means don't do this or do this, uh, to show us righteousness and evil in order to reveal in us that we could not produce righteousness apart from God coming and helping us, healing us, redeeming us. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 actually says this really clearly. Paul says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we know that the law is good and right. The law revealed our need for a Savior, and it was really God's provision to open our eyes to show us this very thing. But this isn't the only thing that He put into place in order to bring temporary provision in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. But he also raised up this group of people called the priests. In the book of Exodus, God separated the tribe of Levi to be priests, and priests were those who ministered to the Lord on behalf of the people. They were mediators. They were people that were specifically set apart 
in order to bring forth sacrifices, pray on behalf of, and stand in intercession on behalf of the people because not everybody could come to God in and of themselves, representative of themselves as individuals or their families. Priests were those that did that for the nation of Israel. And these were God's chosen people. Israel was God's chosen people who would eventually bring forth the Messiah. And the priests were among those chosen people who were the mediators within them. And so you see Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, uh, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, for, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. In other words, this is kind of revealing that there were high priests and priests that were consecrated and set apart for the nation of Israel, but they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. And this verse is saying that Jesus, as the high priest, which those priests were representing, they were an archetype of what Jesus was going to come and be and reveal and complete fully and completely in himself, was saying Jesus didn't have to make an offering for himself because he was sinless. And this is an important point that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life unlike anybody else, even the high priest or any priest that represented the people of Israel before God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. When Jesus came, he became the high priest and he allows us to come into the presence of God. That was the purpose of his mediation. And so there's the priests in the Old Testament. There's the sacrifices in the Old Testament. The concept of sacrifices goes all the way back to Genesis with Cain and Abel. However, as a system, the sacrifice was instituted and used as an atonement for sin in Exodus and ongoing. There were five types of sacrifices that one could offer from devotion to atonement. And we read about some of this in Hebrews 10 as it also references Jesus, but it's showing us the purpose and the point of the sacrificial system. It says in this, this in verse 1 of chapter 10, for the law, since it only, only has a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins or to cleanse the conscience. And this is important because the sacrificial system was essentially saying that there's life in the blood. This is, this is literally something had, that death had to be given. A life had to be given in order for sins to be forgiven. And this is important because when Jesus came to give his life as a sinless sacrifice, this would be a permanent sacrifice for all people that would believe upon him to permanently connect us once and for all to the Father and restore us to right relationship with God. We call it substitutionary atonement, where Jesus paid for our sins. He died in our place. We were not sinless. He was sinless. We have not yet died, so Jesus died in our place. But all of us bear the consequences of death. The wages of sin is death. I've already gone over the, the cycles of death, the consequence of death, which is the consequence of our rebellion. Jesus actually paid that for us completely and totally. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a temporary provision to show us 
that life needed to be given and life was in the blood. And so sacrifices actually helped to teach us and show us what ultimately needed to happen in Jesus Christ. And the final temporary provision was the temple. In Exodus, the concept of the temple was born with the tent of meeting. And then ultimately, there was a temple that was built by Solomon. And this was the place of God's presence. This is where the priests would reside. This is where they would minister. This is where the Holy of Holies was. This is where the the Ark of the Covenant would be. This is where the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. This is where people would make sacrifices. This is where people would come and give their temple shekel. This is where they would pay homage and, and honor to God. And His presence would dwell. And ultimately, Jesus would speak about Himself as the temple when He basically looks at the temple in Jerusalem and says, I will tear down this temple and raise it up in three days. But He was speaking of Himself. Once again, we see the temple as a temporary provision in the Old Testament that would speak of Jesus fully and completely coming to bring fullness to our our lives. And so this is the temporary provision, but the complete provision for salvation we read about and understand in the New Testament, which is built upon the foundation of the temporary provision in the Old Testament. And we've seen that and we see it in Jesus. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save salvation, that which is lost. He came to bring us into salvation. 1 Timothy 1, 15 uh, through 16 says, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, There is no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they must be saved. It is through and it is in and it is by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, what I want to look at in the complete provision of salvation is all about the work and the person of Jesus. We want to quickly just mention that is first because of his life. Jesus was conceived, born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Luke chapter 1 verse 26. Jesus lived a perfect life and in so doing fulfilled the law perfectly. Matthew 5 17. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. John references this in John 1, 29, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, which we read. It says that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was a perfect sacrifice that he could be given for all men. His life absolutely is important to the issue of complete and full provision for you and I. We have to understand that anybody that suggests in any way whatsoever that Jesus living a sinless life was not important does not know what they're talking about. The sinless life matters to us. In fact, that is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin because anybody that was born through the line of Adam had the curse of death on them. So Jesus was not born through the line of Adam. He was born in Mary, but conceived of by the Holy Spirit. He did not come through the line of Adam as a mere man. And we know that, and it is why it is so vital and important, because the curse of death remains on humanity through the line of Adam. I read that to you in Romans chapter 5. Death spread to all men through Adam. Jesus did not come through Adam, and that's important to remember. The second piece of understanding the full and complete provision of our salvation is the death of Jesus. In the same way that a sacrifice was offered, Jesus gave his life for ours. This is mentioned over 175 times in the New Testament. Very significant. It's obviously part of Orthodox Christianity. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 says this. And he began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus told his disciples this. They still didn't understand because they were thinking temporary uh, provision. They were thinking temporary salvation, deliverance, military, political power, overthrow the Roman government. That was part of their theology. But Jesus had to explain to them that he must suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders. He said, I must suffer, be killed, rise again. Why did he have to die? Because human being, beings bear the penalty of sin without any way of redeeming their, themselves or repaying the debt. The death of Jesus was an offering made for all humanity. We call this substitutionary atonement. Jesus had to die. He had to voluntarily, willingly give himself where God the Son could make a covenant with God the Father. And that covenant was a perfect covenant that cannot be broken. Every covenant made before that between man and God was something that was broken because we could never fulfill any of the demands or the requirements of the law or anything else, any stipulations that God gave to us from the garden where he said, don't eat of this tree, where he gave the law in Exodus. And he said, don't do these things and do these other things. We could not fulfill that. Jesus was the only one that fulfilled the law perfectly and lived a perfect sinless life because it was God the Son making covenant with God the Father. And in so doing, he gives his life willingly, voluntarily as a sinless sacrifice, permanently and completely restoring those that believe unto the Father. So, so important. We read also in Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6 to further affirm this. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, chast the, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed, completely, totally, fully healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 through 25 actually reaffirms that same passage that I just read in Isaiah. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had to die so that we might become the righteousness of God. He, the substitutionary atonement, the price that he paid was for us. It had to happen. Somebody had to step up and pay for us because if we died ourselves in our own righteousness, it would not be enough. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. We were not able to, to live out the way in which God called us to live, created us to live, and, um, and the law demanded that we live. Jesus had, just, Jesus had gone through the most extreme torture a person could ever face. He was beaten, spit on, flogged, mocked. He had a crown of thorns shoved in his skull. He was forced to carry a large wooden cross while being beaten, then nailed to the cross in the heat of the day for all to see that many had, had told him while he was on the cross, save yourself. If you can really do anything for yourself, then save yourself. And they mocked him. How could he endure such torture? An innocent man, the Son of God, offered in such a way. After hanging on this cross, he simply said in John chapter 20, it is finished. What is finished? Our debt was paid in full. The task that Jesus came to accomplish was fulfilled. Humanity was in bondage to sin at this moment, and Jesus paid for the entire condition of our sin in full. That those who believe upon Jesus could now choose to follow him 
and be restored back to relationship, which is exactly what we were created for. And so we have the life of Jesus, we have the death of Jesus, but we also have the resurrection of Jesus, which is why we celebrate Easter, because if he didn't rise from the dead, it wouldn't prove that he was the Son of God, but he did rise from the dead. The resurrection proves that his death was sufficient and effective toward those who believe. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says, Now I make this known to you, brethren, that the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And the writer of Corinthians, Paul, also goes on to say how important the resurrection was. In verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Jesus rose from the dead that we might rise from the dead and that those who believe in him would rise from the dead. He is our provision, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. His resurrection is also our resurrection. Those that believe. And this is so important because we have full, complete provision for our salvation, but it necessitates a response, which is what we want to focus on in the rest of our session today, is what is the response to salvation? We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We couldn't pay a price for it, but we must receive it. So how do we receive it? And the first thing that Scripture teaches us in order to receive salvation is that we must believe. It's very clear, not about how we behave, but that we believe. This is why we preach, in order for people to understand, in order for people to have an opportunity. We see this in Mark 16, John 1, 12, Romans 4, Romans 5, Hebrews 10, John 5, 24, on and on. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes... Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, that no one may boast. Acts 16.31, They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We place our faith in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ as our only provision. We must believe. God has given us faith, and we can put our faith in ourselves. We can put our faith in another God. But when you put your faith... You believe and you put your faith into the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, you're saved. This isn't the only response, but this is certainly the first and most important response. The second response that we read about from Scripture is we must repent. Almost every person who preached the gospel in the New Testament called people to repentance as a response to the provision of God for our salvation. In many ways, we've taken repentance out of our preaching, and this, I think, is destructive and is hurting us. When you change the message, you also change the power that accompanies the message because the power is attached to the very message, the pure message that has been delivered to us. The word repent in our English dictionary means to feel sorry or remorse. It comes from a Latin version of this, which means it means to be sorry again, but that is not what repentance actually means biblically. Biblically, the word repentance means to change your mind, to turn around. Some think it only means just to change your mind, but it also means to change your behavior. It starts with a change of mind. That's why the first response 
to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is to believe. And when we believe, what we believe matters because it causes our behavior to alter. It causes our direction to shift. We believe that Jesus is the only payment for our sins. We believe that we're called to follow Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we believe that what Jesus said is true. And when you do, you follow what Jesus says and not what you say. You follow what Jesus is about and not what you're about. We leave a self-willed, self-focused, self-inflated life to follow the Son of God, where He goes, what He says, and what He calls us to do. When we repent, we sever ourselves from that rebellion of old. We sever our past from the things that have drawn us away from God, and we latch on to the very person and provision of what has drawn us towards God. And this is actually what we need. We need to understand that repentance is the, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the fact that the Father would spare no expense by sending His one and only Son to give His life so that you and I could be restored back to relationship. But this provision was not given so that we would just pack up and wait for heaven and just get a golden ticket so we could get into the golden gates. No, this was given so that you and I would come back into our created purpose to be a son or a daughter of God. We need salvation to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from the consequences of death. We need to be saved for righteousness, truth, and love. We need to be saved for relationship with God. And this could only be paid for by Jesus, as I've said. But many preached repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. The Apostle Peter, Acts chapter 2, he tells them, repent and believe. The Apostle Paul in Acts 26 says to King Agrippa, repent and believe. And we see that repentance was a huge part of all those that have gone before us. And we do not want to excommunicate ourselves from the necessity of this very thing that we need to be in our experience to receive salvation. A hundred years ago, William Booth said this quote, and I think it applies very much to our conversation here today. He said, the chief danger of the 20th century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, and salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. How far have we come from even what he said back then? We still need to hear something like this, that people will preach that it's just to believe, but it's also to repent. We sever ourselves from a self-willed life and we latch on to the Christ, not just the provision of the Christ, but the person of Christ. We follow him. We receive from him and we follow him where he goes, what he says in absolutely everything. The doctrine of salvation is a declaration of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the total sufficiency of our Savior, who He is, what He did for us, and what that means to us. The doctrine of salvation is incredible. It's something that we proclaim. It's what everyone needs to hear. It's what the whole world should have an opportunity to hear. It's why we're passionate about evangelism to let everyone know that Jesus Christ is real. He came, he died, he rose again, he paid a price for every single person. We are not after having Jesus in our life, we are, having, we are after having Jesus as our life. And it, with that said, what I wanna do at the end of our session right now is I wanna pray that the gospel message becomes clear, that the salvation of our souls becomes clear, the person of Jesus becomes clear, and that we become more and more focused on helping other people understand what we understand. 
helping other people have what we have, know what we know, and experience what we've experienced. So let me just pray this over you, pray this with you as we close session two today. Father, I just thank you right now for salvation. I thank you, Lord, for your word that's so clear that you gave your son as a full and complete provision for our salvation, that we would be restored to you, reconciled to you, and have relationship with you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he died, that he rose again. I thank you, Lord, that when we place our complete trust and faith in him, repent from our old way of living, our old sins, all of that, that we are restored to you in relationship. I thank you for that, Lord. And I just pray for a revelation of the sufficiency of Christ in our life, that we would be totally, completely convinced of the sufficiency of your forgiveness for us, your love to us, and this relationship that we have now. And God, I just pray that you would make us passionate about evangelism, to share this simply with the world around us. Help us, Lord, to bring this good news of Jesus Christ, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, to a world that needs you just like we do. And we thank you for that saving grace. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. I look forward to our next session in this class together. Yeah, I will be.